now. Okay, so uh, welcome to this latest installment of the Indic Academy's Q&A with eminent authors. And I am Abhinav Agarwal, your host today. And on behalf of Indic Academy, I'm honored to have with us Dr. Kunrad Els, author of the seminal book, Decolonizing the Hindu Mind. Dr. Els was born in a Flemish Catholic family in Leuven, Belgium, which I learned recently is home to the Anhauser Bush. Dr. Els graduated in philosophy, Chinese studies, and Indo-Iranian studies. He became interested in communal disputes in India during his stay at the Banaras Hindu University. Decolonizing the Hindu mind is based on his doctoral thesis submitted at Leuven in 1998. He has written several other books since, and the most recent of which is Mahatma Gandhi and his Assassin that was published very recently in 2015. So Dr. Els, Welcome to this Q&A with Indic Academy. And I'll get started with my first question, which is, so my very first question is, and which I suspect more than a few of our viewers today would be interested in is, what is a European born to a Catholic family doing writing about Hindus? And more pertinently, what led you to the rather provocatively titled book, Decolonizing the Hindu Mind? I want to draw your attention in particular to your statement early in the book where you write, and I quote, but to them, that is Sri Aurobindo, Arun Shori, and other champions of Hindu revivalism, English is just a language, while for the English-speaking elite, it is a fortress, end quote. So how much of this colonized mindset with English is connected with the colonization that is the topic of your book? Right, well, for me, it started like this. I... Um was in Banaras for uh, uh, a course in uh, Indian philosophy. And it is then that I discovered the uh, communal situation in India and how misunderstood it is in the West. I mean, I had before that I had no particular interest in that. But then you see there was the start of the uh, Satanic Verses affair, if you remember, in the autumn of 1988. And then I noticed that many so-called secularists were on the side of Syed Shahabuddin, who proposed to ban the book. Others, of course, were against it, like the communist fortnightly frontline was in favor of allowing this uh, critique of Islam, because at the time the left was divided on the issue. And so the hard left was critical of religion, and in this case, therefore, critical of Islam. But you see, most of them were not. And um, so that made me wonder, you see what is happening here. Then I found out it had, you know, it was related to the Ayodhya question, which I then proceeded to study. Uh, so what I, what, what someone born a Catholic and so on in the distant West might, um, might be wanting here is simply to find out the truth. I was just surprised by what was happening and I wanted to find out more. And then one thing led to another. Now, the um, role of English, you see right now we are speaking English and it just happens to be practical at the moment. Indeed, you see in my personal case, I, I don't think that I would ever learn an Indian language to the same extent as you people speak it. Um, so for me, it's practical. And if I'm very much against the role of English in India, it is a plea against self-interest. You see, I think every 
nation uh, should function using its own language. And then English can be learned as a foreign language, just as it is for me. Um, so the role of English uh, could now for most Hindus be just a matter of convenience. It is there, you know, it is the dominant language, so it's practical to learn it. But for a class in India, it is simply uh, an element of self-identification by which they want to set themselves apart from the backward natives, you know, as, as they consider you. And so I wanted to draw attention to this distinction. For, for instance, the Hindu nationalist Sri Aurobindo, who was very good in English, who had gone through the whole Western curriculum, who knew Latin and Greek and German and French. Um, you know, it was just a matter of convenience. He adopted the conviction that India should rise up, that India should become independent and so on. And English was just there. He could communicate with a lot of people using it, but not more than that. Whereas for the Indian elite, it is a means of becoming part of the Anglosphere, of emancipating from being backward Indians and becoming, um, so to speak, honorary Americans. Okay. Uh, I don't think there's anything to disagree there. Uh, I'll uh, say that, uh, so... You are, you know, moving to my next question, you are quite direct. And I would say, you know, some would even say harsh when you write that even among committed Hindus, and I quote, there is not always much life in Hinduism, except in the elementary sense that the rituals are performed. Ignorance and inertia are rampant, end quote. And then you quote the late jurist Nani Palkiwala, who said that India is like a donkey carrying a sack of gold. So... How much of this is to do with the calculated destruction, in the words of Claude Alvarez, of the idea that other cultures may have had thriving technologies? And how much is this related to the fixation with English that you write about? You know, you, you talked about English as being a means of self-identity for some people. But, uh, and you, you hinted upon, upon, you know, the, upon English as being a way for a lot of Indians to identify themselves with the Anglosphere. Uh, I'll throw in one more question out here, which is that in your studies so far, have you come across any other society, culture, civilization, which has had this level of, uh, of, of colonization via English as a language? Well, I haven't studied the case closely, but of course we all know about Africa. In African countries, education is completely in the colonial language, English, French, Portuguese. And there they completely identify modern education with the former colonizer. Now, you see in the case of Africa, that is also deplorable, but rather more understandable because they do not have a tradition of literate culture. So to them, you see, literate culture is automatically identified with English, French, and so on. Whereas in the case of India, they have a, a, a very large, very sophisticated literary culture going back thousands of years. So it is demeaning. You see, it is self-humiliating for Indians to, to behave like Zimbabwe. You know, they needn't do this. And so, you know, I, I've, I've had this discussion very often with Indians. And so some say, ah, oh, you know, but 
some romantic Westerners like yourself, like me, um, want to keep Indians in this box of Indianness, whereas we want to emancipate ourselves and we use English for that. Well, you see, this English is not necessary at all. The Chinese don't use English. And if now more Chinese are studying English, it is only as a foreign language. It is after having had their education in Chinese. And the same for Russians, Germans, Japanese, and so on. So among nations with a history of civilization, of literacy, India stands out. So this is really not necessary at all. Okay. Now, moving on to, uh, you know, the period of, uh, uh, in, you know, the period uh, of India that you write about in your book, you uh, say that uh, early on in your book that the period that interests you is 1988-1998, and you, and, and, and you write, Hindu revivalism's breakthrough to political prominence uh, was this period, and which was a decade that witnessed, uh, you write, a revolutionary breakthrough in the realm of ideas, mostly thanks to the efforts of Ram Swarup, Sita Ram Goel, and Arun Shori. Later, you also mention Shwapandas Gupta and Girilal Jain as examples of journalists who changed camp when it was difficult and required courage to do so. As the BJP gained political strength, you write that, and I quote, more and more fair weather friends started joining the Hindu camp, not just in politics, but also in the media. And you mentioned the late Varsha Bhosle as one of the young Hindu voices and several others as amateur historians that joined this uh, uh, that uh, gained prominence during this phase. Now, this book of yours came out in 2001, I believe. So in the roughly 15 years since this, uh, the book first came out, are there others who, in your opinion, could be added to this list? You know, your name, of course, being the obvious and, and notable uh, you know, uh, choice. But has the right-wing intellectual ecosystem shown any signs of nascent emergence or is the Hindu right-wing still dependent on lone individual efforts working without any kind of an institutional support that the left, for example, has enjoyed for decades? Well, those fair-weather friends, I certainly would not include them in any kind of intellectual revival of Hinduism. You see, they, um, they are good at uh, photo opportunities and appearing on TV and so on, but they don't contribute anything substantial. And by the way, I wouldn't want to include the late Varsha Bhosle among them. On the contrary, I, I think she expressed her genuine conviction when she supported Hindu causes. Um, but you see, since then, uh, a certain uh, awakening on the intellectual side has taken place, but it is very marginal. It includes only a few people. You see, there are now a few internet papers that are doing good work, like India First, like Swarajya, um, like Vijayvani. And um, so they make a difference, and it is very good that they are now easily accessible for everyone. Because, you see, in the 90s, you were still locked in the position which was allowed for you by the dominant media. And now you can bypass them and you can at least reach those who are interested. You cannot reach the ground public yet, but it, it does make a difference. Um, so on, on that score, you see, there is a certain progress, but on the other hand, 
within the official Hindu movement, you find less and less Hindu conviction. You find more and more time servers. You find a very lackadaisical attitude to Hindu causes. And so now that the BJP is safely in power, I find it is mostly enjoying the fact of being in power. Admittedly, of course, doing some very good work on the economic front, on the security front, on the public hygiene front. But in terms of Hindu causes, it is just an upper Congress. And so, you know, any intellectual Hindu awakening that may be taking place on the sides is certainly not in evidence within the BJP. On the contrary, the period that I studied, there was far more Hindu fervor within the BJP than there is today. So uh, this brings me to a very, uh, to a somewhat touchy subject. And I'm going to persist with this, uh, uh, with this thread for a few questions here, which is uh, the Sangh Parivar, right, as it is uh, often called. And in your book, you're puzzled by the fact, and I quote, Nobody has cared to notice the existence of a strong sense of dissatisfaction with the Sangh Parivar among supporters of Hindu revivalism. You answer this question somewhat on the very next page when you write that the RSS has always taken a step forward only to take two steps backwards. And you make this uh, uh, sentence and you, you write this in the context of its flip-flops on Ayodhya. Kashmir, Article 370, Bangladeshi infiltration, the common civil code on Sanskrit, Bande Matram, and the list is virtually endless. So what do you ascribe such an abject failure, if I may use that the phrase of the Sangh, to influence Indian state policy? You note, and I quote, from 1952 to 1977, the BJS-BJP cannot boast of a single policy decision which the Indian state has made under its influence. Is there really not a single policy decision that one could ascribe even marginally to the to the efforts or to the uh, you know influence of uh, the Bharatiya Jansang or later the BJP? Well, if there was one, then I would have heard it in the many discussions with Sang people I've had so far. You see, in Sang propaganda, they boast of the campaigns which they have led like the campaign against cow slaughter in the late 1960s. Well, yes, you see, it is true that they can get big crowds moving, demonstrating, marching, but the results are missing. And even if you are in the opposition, you may be able to influence public discourse. I mean, a number of the causes of the Hindu parties are not specifically Hindu. And, you know, it is quite possible uh, to, to make others see the reasonableness. Like, for example, the discrimination against Hindus ordained by the Constitution itself in education, in temple management. First of all, you could get other parties to positively support it. Like Congress, for much of its history, has not been very anti-Hindu. has also cared to... Um, to uh, garner the Hindu votes. So once in a while they would be able, they would be willing to support the Hindu cause. You know, that has not been sufficiently tried. Okay. And then in, um, you know, in certain political contexts, you know, where people need to cobble majorities, 
you, you may sometimes be in a position, you know, to bargain and to, to get your demands across. Now, none of that I see as having happened. And today, when the BJP has a full majority on its own, it could implement such things and it just fails to do so. And I think some of it can be traced, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this in, uh, I'll refer to this in my next question. And in your book, you refer to a Durdarshan debate, I don't know whether it was in the early 90s, where the VHP leader Giriraj Kishore, and you write, hopelessly on the defensive, hastened to disclaim Drona, with the typical readiness to lop off from Hindu tradition any and every part to which the opinion establishment objects. This tendency to try and live up to standards set by once declared enemies has been common Hindu practice in the modern age. And you continue writing that Hindu activists have an inferiority complex and value nothing so much as being accepted by respected people. Thought or opinion is not what the Sangh uh, values, but status. And status, you write, in the Nehruvian dispensation would imply contempt of Hindutva. So in a way, if I, if I read you correctly, you also seem to be implying that the chance to decolonize the Hindu mind presented itself perhaps as far back as uh, during Pandit Nehru's rule, but which was lost because of uh, you know, the last viceroy, as Panditji described himself, uh, mindset. Has nothing changed since? And many, including I, would well want to ask, especially in the last year and a half, No. <laughs> On okay. On the contrary, you see, in the 50s, you had a small but very committed uh, Hindu party, which, uh, you know, in its party manifesto articulated many specific Hindu demands. You know, these have been softened and softened and softened uh, when it had become the BJP. And now that they have come to power, they have been completely forgotten. And, you know, you can't blame Pandit Nehru, of course, you know, there's a lot of criticism possible of Pandit Nehru. Uh, but, you know, you don't have to stop yourself from doing anything just because somebody else is not doing it. So you can't blame um, Pandit Nehru forever. You know, what have you done? That is the question. And so the RSS has been boasting a lot of being the vanguard of Hindu society and so on. Well, if you see how Hindu society has evolved in the last 50 years, I don't think that that is a reason to be proud. You know, all this Americanization that is presently taking place, you know, does that show the RSS as the vanguard of Hindu society? Well, in that case, it turns out that it's not really a Hindu movement. And so, you know, since you do want to address the question of the Sangh. You know, what I think of the Sangh is simply, you know, very many common Sangh people are very all right, very committed. And, you know, what they do in terms of uh, social work is very impressive, it's systematically um, played down by the enemy side, but it is very much there. However, what is failing is the Sangh leadership. You know, all this positive energy of the common people is not being taken anywhere, is not being used for any uh, meaningful purpose. So on that track, I'll, I'll stick with the song with perhaps one or two questions more. Uh, 
you know, you know, you are fairly detailed in your criticism of the Sung's unusual intellectual poverty. You know, you call it in one place and uh, its arrogance or, the, or its intellectual bankruptcy, so to say. You write that the Sung has deliberately chosen the non-intellectual mode of functioning. And as an example, you, uh, you, you present uh, the Deendayal Research Institute as an example, which uh, you say since its foundings in the 1970s to the time you wrote your book, uh, uh, had, I quote, published hardly anything that can be called a work of solid Hindu scholarship. These are the words of a Sung critic that you quote. And you evidently share this analysis because in describing the hijacking of the Congress by communists, as an example, you write that the Gandhian do-good emotions proved to be no match at all for Marxist intellectual work. So uh, my question really is that, uh, uh, and obviously there is, a, you know, you quote uh, and you write about in some detail the example of how uh, Sita Ram Goel was constantly hampered more by the Sangh than even the Congress in his work. Uh, so. Sort of two questions that I want to ask you. First is that uh, uh, one is that can you talk a little more in the context of the last 15 years? And you know you, you've sort of already answered the, the question that uh, uh, in the negative. But with the growth of several ventures, and you referred to Swaraj and uh, and India Facts and others that have sought to build a more rightist discourse in the media. Uh, but from a more institutional question of the Sangh, do you still see it mired in its uh, quote-unquote anti-intellectualist uh, intellectualist dogma? Well, I haven't seen any change there. You know, so the default answer would definitely be yes, they are still in that anti-intellectual mindset. You see, but then it was being justified like this. They said, do you need to read a book to love your mother? Yes. And so you can love your motherland. You can be patriotic without any intellectual work. Well, yes, as an emotion, that is certainly correct. But in the modern world, you have to function. You know, you have to be able to hold your own in argumentations. You have to justify the policies you propose. And therefore, it is just simply necessary to be, to be able to articulate your position intellectually. You have to be able to hold your own in debates, for example. And there, the um, the Hindu side is still today a big failure. Okay, I have uh, one follow-on question to this. Can you describe a little bit uh, in what you mean uh, that Gandhian do-good emotions proved to be no match at all for Marxist intellectual work, and what was the what was the uh, uh, you know the impact that that had on the Congress as a party? Because uh, you do write that uh, the Hindu Mahasabha was actually formed by the Congress, was supported in its founding by the Congress Party itself. But uh, uh, you know that was then. Can you describe a little bit uh, what you mean by by this? You know, Gandhian do good emotions on the one hand, pitted versus Marxist intellectual work. What do you mean by that? Well, Marxists worked on people's minds. And yes, you see that reaches less people, fewer people. But that is, those are the people who make a difference. You see, the image of India in its own eyes, and certainly in the eyes of the world, has been made by this Marxist minority. And that there is a big Hindu majority with all the right emotions has made no difference. 
You see, they, they, knew, they knew how to work on the things that mattered. You see, where the power lay. Whereas, you see, the, the Hindu side only, you know, got emotional and worked up, and but it, it made no difference. And so that is still their attitude to the extent that they, um, they are committed to Hindu causes at all. Because many of the people now in power don't care about Hinduism. You see, they have used what they call Hindutva for garnering votes, for getting their own workers fired up to win the elections. And then once the elections were won, they said, oh yeah, but that had nothing to do with Hinduism. That had to do with development. And so don't bother us with this Hindu obsession. You know, we, we don't want it. Or at best, you know, we will address it someday in the future when, you know, there is full employment in India, when there is technological development and so on. Then maybe one day we might concern ourselves with Hinduism. Well, you see, that is just not the attitude you can expect of a Hindu party. And you have all the disadvantages of being, anti, uh, of being a pro-Hindu party, in the sense that all the anti-Hindu forces still keep on describing the BJP as Hindu fanatic. So, like you may have heard of the very recent uh, incident in Irvine University in California, where... Um, well, I guess it's fair to say a Hindu lobby group um, has failed to finance a number of chairs there because the left in the, inside the university opposed them, you see, identified them with Hindu nationalism and said that, you know, from, from those people, we don't want anything. We don't want to cooperate with them. And so, you see, Hindus could be generous and everything, all they wanted. You know, it didn't help because their negative image had been prepared by those people working on people's minds and not on emotions. So you see, in hard terms, in academic terms, India and Hinduism have a very negative image. They work on maintaining that. They make sure that nobody with the so-called wrong opinions gets a place inside the universities, inside the media. And so all your nice emotions are powerless against that. In this case, since you asked me about the recent period, well, one thing they should now be doing is to pack all the institutions with their own people. That's what political parties do when they come to power. Unfortunately, I know from very good sources that they, some people, of course, see this, see this need, but complain that they haven't got enough people that they haven't got the right people to man these institutions. And that is true, and that is precisely because all these years they have completely neglected that side of their job. <coughs> Excuse me. So basically you're saying that even when out of uh, uh, political power, the right wing failed to build the intellectual ecosystem that would uh, then be in a position to provide uh, the man, the, the raw manpower that they needed to man these uh, institutions that now you say that the right wing, even among those in the right wing that uh, feel the need still uh, are hampered by the lack of such uh, uh, intellectuals or, or academicians in your opinion? You know, scholarship doesn't fall from the air. It has to be groomed. It has to be developed. You know, you can't go to the marketplace and buy scholars, as the RSS seems to think. 
You see, in, in, in the Ayodhya case, for example, they were very lucky that they found a few people willing to defend their position on Ayodhya. And Ayodhya was a very easy thing to defend because there, ultimately, the truth was crystal clear. Of course, there had been a temple at the site, and it has been duly dug up uh, in archaeological excavations. Um, so in this case, it was fairly easy to defend. And fortunately, they found a few people capable of doing so. You know, but on the whole, they have been very absent on that front. And right now, when they are in a position to promote, to some extent, their own view of history and of the current situation in the world, they simply don't have the right people. So this leads... And, and if they do, and if they do, well, they don't value them. Yes, I think we... Uh... That uh, seems to be an undeniable, uh, you know, reality, uh, which, uh, you know, since we are on the topic of intellectual ecosystem and history, I wanted to uh, quote the late Girilal Jain, who you uh, uh, mentioned in your book as having said, and I quote, this is Girilal Jain's words, I have often said half in jest, half in seriousness, that Muhammad Ali Jinnah was the greatest benefactor of Hindus in modern times. Now, this goes against the dogma that, uh, say, the Sangh Parivar has held that uh, partition was the greatest tragedy to befall the subcontinent. And uh, I, I would request you to elaborate why you think that non-partition would not have been all that pleasant for Hindus and why believing partition to be a tragedy is, you know, is it a sign of uh, perhaps continuing colonization that... Uh, we a lot of uh, uh, you know even on the right wing believe that partition was uh, an unmitigated disaster, a tragedy. Yes, we have talked very little about colonization yet, and here we won't either because this is not uh, an issue that concerns colonization. You see, the partition or non-partition of India has very little to do with the British, with British rule. You know, this is a conflict you have between Hindus and Muslims. And it has been there since before the British came, and it is still there with you now that the British have gone. Um, it is not true, as 99% of Indians believe, that it is the British who foisted partition on you. You see, the British didn't care. And in fact, to the extent that they cared, they were against partition. Um, two of the viceroys, and not, not the last one, not Mountbatten, but Wavell and uh, Lindisgau, have told Gina to his face, you see, we are proud of the empire we created. We want to keep it in one piece, even if it becomes independent. You see, that was the British position, and it's a very logical position. But then, you see, they saw that, you know, Gina was becoming too powerful. The Muslims were too serious about their demand, and so they thought, well, it will be the lesser evil than um, to arrange for a partition. But it is especially the, the, the Muslims who wanted uh, partition and who forced partition on India. Now, there were two camps within the Muslim society, which is those who wanted all of India, like Maulana Azad, and those who were sufficiently impregnated with the uh, democratic uh, modern Western notions to understand that as a minority, they would have to be satisfied with a part of India and become the majority there in that part. And so it's the latter camp that won. Now, suppose the former camp had won. 
then you would have a united India with uh, one third part of the population being Muslim and determined to become the majority. So, as the late Sitarangoal said, in that case, the Muslims would just not have allowed Hindu society. You know, many of the symbols, for example, of India that are now Hindu or drawn from have been deemed anti-Muslim, would have been deemed idolatrous. And you see, those are only the symbolic parts. I mean, you know, the Islamic community would very much have forced itself in all kinds of ways upon Hindu society and made it much more difficult for Hindu society to function. If now, you know, for instance, the tourist office can present India in the world practically as a Hindu heritage, showing off Hindu uh, architecture and so on, it is only because to a very large extent, you have freed yourself of the Islamic element by allowing it to become Pakistan. So in a sense, it is a good thing for the Hindus that right now they have to do without a quarter of their territory, but without a very large part of the Muslim community. So, uh, so one you know, question that I had was that, uh, is believing that partition was uh, uh, you know, a disaster, is in, in what ways, if at all, does it uh, indicate colonization? I mean, where is this, uh, what is influencing this line of thinking on the part of uh, a substantial part of the right wing? Well, it has to do with the choice of what you call the right wing for nationalism. You see, the nationalist paradigm was adopted by the Hindus in the early 20th century, when in Europe it still reigned supreme. You see, the First World War was a war of nations against one another. In a way, it, it, it proved the insanity of the nationalist paradigm, but in a way, it was also the pinnacle of nationalism. And so in the 1920s, nationalism was a matter of course. And so when the Hindu Mahasabha and the RSS were created, obviously they, they took to that paradigm. Also, um, it was the time of the freedom movement, which was a nationalist. So, I mean, everything prompted nationalism. But the world has changed. You see, nationalism is much less important now. First of all, after the Second World War, nationalism gained a bit of a dubious reputation because of its uh, championing by the Nazis, for example. And then the world has changed. You see, there is globalization. The Hindu community has globalized, which is much less identified with the country India than it used to be. So, commensurately, it, it would be right to de-emphasize the nation. Now, partition is bad from a national viewpoint. You know, it means splitting your national territory. Yes, okay, it's not, uh, it's not perfect. It, it, it would be better if it was not the case. But nevertheless, something is more important than your national territory. You see, for Hindu civilization, if temporarily this sacrifice has to be made, well, then it should be made. 
And so, you know, now that the rest of the world has outgrown the nationalist paradigm, I think it is time for Hindus also to do so. And uh, see, to, to see things from a different angle and not to wail anymore about the partition. You see that happened. And in the long run, it should be undone, but it will only be undone if something totally different is uh, being realized, namely the freeing of the Pakistani population from Islam. Because that is their reason, that was historically their reason to not want to be part of India. And so if they outgrow Islam, then anything becomes possible again. But for that, it is necessary to address the ideological question of Hinduism and Islam and not the territorial national question of India versus Pakistan. So in, in a way, uh, the, one of the ways in which to change uh, or affect this discourse is again to do with the mainstream history writing. And uh, it is today an undeniable fact that uh, mainstream history writing in India has been in the complete control of Marxists like, uh, you know, Bipin Chandra, uh, Irfan Habib, Didi Kusambi, who, for example, I think you write in your book, who believed that there was nothing worth learning in Hinduism except uh, for its, uh, I think, uh, for all the defeats that it faced at the hands of Islamic invaders and others. And these are the Marxist historians who, even after being exposed and discredited by, most famously by Arun Shuri's book, uh, Eminent Historians, continue to enjoy taxpayer-funded patronage, the present government included, I'll say. So rather than ask you a prescriptive question, my, you know, my, my question is basically this. What is the framework within which these Marxist historians operate? And you hinted a little bit uh, uh, on that when you talked about uh, how the communists ended up controlling the, the thought leadership of the Congress and nationalism as a guiding force for a lot of the ideology behind the Hindu Mahasabha and so on. But what is the framework within which these Marxist historians operate that force fits ideology into every single interpretation of historical events, even you know, often enough at the cost of uh, the truth and, and uh, you know, veracity? It's more of you know what guides or what drives from an ideological perspective this uh, you know Marxist history writing that we have witnessed. Yes, I would say it is not so much Marx himself. You see, Karl Marx on on many points would have agreed with the Hindu nationalists, and certainly on anti-colonialism. You see, even though of course he was very much a European and could hardly conceive of civilization except as European civilization. Nevertheless, in principle, he was in favor of decolonization. He was against exploitation, namely against the exploitation of India by the British. So, you see, the Marxists in India are not entirely true to Marx. Um, what, they may have, um, what they may have been faithful to in Marx is his famous saying, uh, about religion, that it is the opium of the masses. So, on the whole, they are anti-religious. But then again, only the real, pure, hard Marxists are really anti-religious. Because most people who pass as Marxists in India are only against Hinduism. They are not against religion. I mean, certainly they are collaborating with Christianity and Islam. And, you know, they don't bother about criticizing these religions. They only criticize Hinduism. 
And so there you get, let's say, a second generation Marxism, which also exists in the West, cultural Marxism, which you know has on its agenda mostly opposing the majority and defending all kinds of minorities. And so in the case of India, it means opposing Hinduism and defending all kinds of minorities. Also intra-Hindu minorities, saying that they are not Hindu or at any rate giving as much trouble as possible to Hindu society by supporting these minorities, uh, caste-based or otherwise. And so that is mainly the framework of Indian Marxists. It is this uh, opposing the majority, you know, trying to break the society down in these constituent minorities. Uh, I'll move on to uh, 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 towards a topic that you that uh, forms uh, uh, the latter part of, of your book, uh, which is uh, you know specific grievances uh, of the Hindus and. Uh, one is the constitutionally forced discrimination, enforced discrimination that exists. And uh, uh, my question is that, that if you look at this constitutionally enforced discrimination, how much of this has been the result of the colonization and how much of this has actually contributed to the colonization of the Hindu mind? And I'll take an example. When, when you write about the overturning of the 1990 Kerala High Court verdict by the communists of the state at the time, you quote the Supreme Court verdict in the Adi Vishveshwar of the Kashi Vishwanath Temple versus the state of Uttar Pradesh, where the gist of the Supreme Court verdict was, and I quote, the Hindus are not a denomination, section, or sect under the constitution. They cannot, under Article 26, claim the fundamental right to maintain institutions for religious or charitable purposes. Do you, I mean, I have certainly not, do you see any recognition, debate, realization, accept, acceptance, anything among the opinion makers then or even today and the intellectuals on the right about this discrimination and the need to end it? Do you even see it as a political viable issue to take up in today's environment where, for example, you know, the, the imagined bogey of intolerance has been shown to be a hugely effective and successful strategy against uh, uh, the government of the day? Well, those uh, intolerance mongers have, of course, had a handle for their activities in the seeming intolerance of moves by the government or supported by the government on purely symbolic and totally unimportant issues like book banning or like banning cow slaughter. Now, I mean, as a non-Hindu, I have no emotional stake in the issue of cow slaughter. And, you know, if Hindus want um, cows to be protected, then the Indian state should do that. I'm a Democrat. But, you know, it's not something that I leave my sleep for. By contrast, the issue of uh, legal and constitutional discrimination against Hindus, I think that is the key issue. And you see, again, it's not something that gets emotions going, that gets crowds marching, but it is a very fundamental. You see, last year I was in this uh, conference in near Bangalore uh, about education. And you see, one after another representative of some school or some, some school network came to explain, you see, how they wanted to instill Hindu values in their pupils and how they had to 
you know, circumvent this issue or, you know, how they had to uh, do it under some cover because, you know, teaching religion or at least teaching Hinduism is not allowed. You're not supposed to do that in schools unless at least you want to lose your subsidies or so. And then one after another was explaining, you know, how they had, you know, invented some kind of rules, some kind of strategy to get around this, to dress Hindu values up as something secular. Now, this is ridiculous, you see. No Christian or Muslim educator is going to talk like that. And, I mean, if Hindus have any self-worth, any self-respect, they should undo this at once. I mean, this is the first thing that the government should have done. And it's not difficult to do. First of all, it's not even sure that you have to change the constitution. Because if you look at the article, Article 30, which says that uh, minorities cannot be discriminated against in matters of setting up educational uh, institutes, um, it doesn't say explicitly that Hindus are being denied this right. So it's a matter of interpretation. And I think if the Constituent Assembly had been aware that it was denying this right to Hindus, it would not have voted for this article. So, you know, the first thing to do was simply to approach the Supreme Court for an authoritative interpretation of this article. And maybe the discrimination uh, against Hindus you know, could have been done away with without any change at all in the Constitution, without any mass movement, without any ado. Or alternatively, maybe it would have been necessary to change the Constitution, but even then, this is not an issue that goes against the interests of the minorities as such. You see, it goes against the interests of those strategists who want to bring down Hindu society, yes but it does not go against the interests of the Muslims or the Christians. They are not being denied any right. It's only Hindus who are being given a right. So that's something far better to do. It has much less to do with intolerance, you know, with Hindu fanaticism and so on. It simply means equality for all citizens. I mean, who could be against that? Even a BJP uh, government that doesn't have a, a real majority, like the coalition government under Vajpayee, could still bring that to parliament because easily it could convince other parties to support it. Because it's not specifically a Hindu issue. It's simply an issue of equality. And so that, I think, is the, is the most important issue. Related to it is the issue of temple management, which, of course, has a lot of local complications and so on, but essentially is the same issue, namely the rights which are accorded to the minorities should obviously also be accorded to Hindus. So on this uh, topic, I'll have one more question, which is that you quote S. Uh, uh, Gurumurthy uh, when talking about Article 30 of the Constitution as evidence of the political discrimination against Hindus in India and things seem to have taken a distinct turn for the worse with the enactment of the Right to Education Act of 2009, which ironically was passed with the support of the BJP, and which has, and, and, and the party, the BJP namely, has not shown any inclination to want to correct this, and you know, manifest anti-Hindu bias in the Right to Education Act. Uh, 
I want to ask you, you know, since obviously this act was passed in 2009, much before, much after your book uh, uh, came out, what is your view of this act in, in, you know, in the, how do you place this in the context of your book, Decolonizing the Hindu Mind? Well, if other parties want to do things that go against Hindu interests or have the implication of going against Hindu interests, that should be no surprise. But that the BJP does not see these implications, that is worrying. You see, in this case, you see the problem with other parties is not so serious. Um, you know, Many of them are not per se against Hinduism, it's just that in particular situations they see their interests as lying in, you know, appeasing the Muslim community in order to get their votes or something. And then, you know, if it implies that some, some adverse effects exist uh, upon Hindu society, well then so be it. You know, because Hindus are not militant enough to rise up in arms against that anyway. Um, but it's not that they have a heartfelt, you know, conviction, you know, that goes against Hinduism. Um, so, you know, the BJP could be, could convince other parties many times. It is the BJP itself which is the problem, you know, because it, it has a very wobbly sense of commitment to Hinduism. Uh, you know, it doesn't know very well where its mind is. To a very large extent, it has imbued, it has interiorized the anti-Hindu uh, prejudices that the secularists are spreading because they too read the Times of India and so on and gradually those ideas are seeping into their minds and so the original commitment to Hinduism that I still saw in the, the Bharatiya John Sang documents, that there, very little of it is left in today's BJP. So I uh, wouldn't have uh, uh, imagined the Times of India to be, uh, you know, the vehicle for anything, uh, you know, uh, intellectual. But uh, uh, leaving that aside, I see that we are almost out of time. I do want to, before we end, uh, I want to ask you one question that your book is a veritable encyclopedia of the causes and symptoms of the colonization and you uh, cover the entire landscape in, in an almost encyclopedic uh, fashion. Uh, in the light of your experience of the last 15 plus years since this book came out, if you, if I had to ask you to enumerate, uh, say, the three things that need to be done to decolonize the Hindu mind, and uh, I, I do realize that your outlook and your, your prognosis is not very uh, you know, optimistic, but uh, nonetheless, if I had to ask you to enumerate three things, what would they be? Well, I... Uh... I haven't thought about that yet, but um, the very first thing, of course, would be to uh, do away with English. Um, yeah, Angrezi Hatao, because, you know, if you have to go through the effort of rewriting all your textbooks in, you know, Hindi or Sanskrit or whatever language you choose, that effort alone will already make you very conscious of your own Indian heritage and your own typically Indian viewpoint. Um, and then, you know, the, the effort of people to, to practice science in the same language in which they talk to their, their cleaning lady or the tea boy or something, that makes a whole world of difference. I mean, in my country too, this has happened. 
You know, French used to be the language of, of culture and Flemish was being spoken in, in very, you know, ordinary contexts. And yet, you see, it became the medium of education and of administration gradually. And so, you know, if you have any self-respect, if you, if you want to be really post-colonial, if you want to forget about the history of colonialism, well, then obviously the first thing to do is to do away with the colonial medium. When the constituent assembly spoke about national language, nobody was voting for English. The, the choice was between Sanskrit and Shud Hindi. And so to that generation, it was totally obvious that they had fought against the British. Obviously, they were going to do away with the language of the British. And so I think that is the, the very important thing to do. Otherwise, you see, well, society can take care of itself. Hurdles like discrimination against Hindus in education have to be taken away. But then you see what Hindus do with education, that is up to them, that is not up to the state. I see. Okay. Uh, we are coming to the close, but I did want to uh, open this up for a very, very, very brief Q&A from our participants. And I have some questions that have been coming in through chat. Uh, if we cannot cover through all the questions that come in, I will collate them and send them to you separately via email and we can share them in an appropriate forum. But I'll take the first question which uh, came in from Jitu and he says that Marx actually says this. Marx was of the view that British rule in India was fulfilling a double mission, a mission destructive as well as regenerating. Marx believed that the ruin and devastation caused by British colonial rule was a terrible but necessary price for the only social revolution ever heard of in Asia. So his question, Jitu's question is, so how did he oppose colonialism? Well, in principle, he opposed exploitation. But of course, even in his uh, analysis of the situation in Europe, he appreciated the role of capitalism. You see, the fact of being against capitalism in his case um, does not mean that he suspended the power of discrimination. You know, there's a difference between what he wanted for the future, which was a fight against capitalism, the abolition of capitalism, and uh, an analysis of the role that capitalism had played in the past. You know, before that, you had, um, you had a feudal society with all kinds of specific roles, you know, inequality between different different classes of people justified by this edifice of religion. And so the role of capitalism historically was to shake up this whole uh, edifice. And so similarly, the role of the British in India was similarly to shake up the whole rusty edifice of Hindu society. So you see, to that extent, to the extent that they want to shake up um, Hindu society, to that extent, even Marxists are true to Marx's view. You know, that is correct. Okay. Uh, okay, so we will open this up uh, for our viewers to ask uh, two questions. And to do that, I believe all of you are muted. So you can unmute your line and you can ask uh, Dr. Elster question. We are actually out of time. So I'll request you to keep your question brief. After this, uh, you can always send your questions in via Twitter or once this video is up at YouTube, you can post your questions there. I'll try and collect and send them to Dr. Elst, but please go ahead and ask your question. Uh, hello, sir. This is Santos. 
I have one quick question for you. I appreciate for all your, I mean, encouraging thoughts. Sir, my quick question is how we can counter this missionaries, money, and the media, which has, I mean, the greatest threat I could feel in the 21st century for Hindus, apart from the, I mean, Islamic invasion for the last yes. thousand years. Well, as for money, I often hear Hindu money bags boasting of how good they are at making money, how in America they are the richest immigrant community and so on. So money should not be a problem. I mean, earning money is not a problem. It is spending money that is a problem because many Hindu money bags are spending their money on the wrong causes. Yes, sir. Um, okay. Then as for media, well, one thing to do is to create better media, is to create your own media. And you see the commercial media will largely fall in line because they have an eye on the market. And if they see the wind blowing the Hindu way, then they will adapt to that. You know, it is because now being anti-Hindu is fashionable that they also are anti-Hindu. But that needn't be, that needn't remain like that. As for missionaries, well, there are two things to do. You see, maybe short-term measures on the ground are necessary, like uh, denying missionaries visa and things like that, that are happening in India. Well, I don't want to comment on that. You know, it's not my field of operation. The other thing to do is long-term and it's fundamental. It is to teach what is wrong with Christianity. You see, Christianity is ultimately a wrong belief system. You see, they essentially believe something that didn't happen. You see, they believe in the resurrection of Christ. And, you know, that is not necessary. You can have religion without that or you can have atheism without that. Either way, that is up to Indians what they themselves want to do, but they don't need Christianity. And you know, if missionaries do social work, that is of course, in order better to create the circumstances in which people can convert. Um, but you know, they can do all the social work they want, but they need not spread these silly superstitions, you know? So therefore it is necessary to uh, create awareness about what exactly is wrong with Christianity. And you need not trouble your Christian neighbors with telling them, hey, you know, I know something about Jesus and I'll tell you, you know, uh, he was not the son of God. Well, yeah, you know, but I don't know if that's going to make a big difference. The most important thing right now is not to convince Christians or Muslims is to convince Hindus. You know, it is Hindus who have all these silly Gandhian conceptions that all religions are saying the same thing and all religions are equally true and so on. You know, of that silly notion, you really have to disabuse yourself. Yes. And then maybe, you see, once you know the truth, you can see, you know, depending on the situation, on what line precisely to take vis-a-vis -vis Muslims or Christians. And, you know, that will then automatically... Uh, explain itself but the first thing to do is to be clear in your own mind okay we'll take a, Thank uh, you, sir. we are very much grateful for your kind words and you are truly i mean the hindu scholars you are talking our voice rather than our i mean cynical and uh, uh, hindus thank you so much thank Bye. you
Thank you, Santosh. We'll take one more question. If anyone has, if they can ask them, uh, you can unmute your mic and ask that question. Okay. Uh, yeah, Konrati. Uh, my my uh, question is um, about this: uh, the the uh, lack of purchase of uh, Hindutva or Hinduism, and uh, whether or not uh, the underlying problem is that because Hinduism is a uh, basically a missionary, it's a Christian theological idea uh, based on missionary writings. Uh, that that's that's if you like a reason why intuitively. Uh, it cannot uh, constitute the basis for a mass movement, uh, which is uh, indigenous at the same time in India. Uh, so, I mean, is that one of the possibilities why there is a kind of lack of traction uh, at an intuitive level among Indians to follow this? Uh... Well, you see, Hindus um, have a sense of community at different levels. You know, they have their extended family. They have historically their caste to which they belong. They have their region, their sampradaya, you know, their, their sect. And so Hinduism is an umbrella identity that, you know, identifies or that, that, that unites all um, pagan movements, pagan convictions, pagan practices in India. Um, so there is no doctrinal unity necessarily necessary you know like if you ask if, if tribals are Hindus if Buddhists are Hindus and so on well by definition they are Hindus because Hindu originally meant an Indian pagan an Indian non-Muslim and you know if you care to define it that far a non-Christian and non-Jew as well but an Indian pagan of any kind and um, so that doesn't say anything about what these people believe like not all Hindus have to believe in reincarnation, for instance. You know, it's a very common belief, but it, nothing says you have to believe in this in order to be a Hindu. Um, so, you know, at some levels, Hinduism can be a uniting um, ideology, uh, particularly during the freedom struggle. I see every community wanted decolonization, wanted to be rid of the British. So, but... I um, I agree that in um, that right now in current politics, people identify a lot more with their own caste, with their own little group, and so to that extent, yes, you see Hinduism does have a problem that uh, Muslims, Christians have to a much lesser extent. That is true, um, but then. You see, it is not necessary to believe the same things. You know, uh, Hindus have a sort of uh, uh, a common terrain, you know, a common ethics, a common way of life to some extent where they can meet one another and then they can withdraw into their own community uh, at the appropriate time. So there is no conflict, there is no contradiction between this common uh, umbrella identity and then more specific, more local identities, not in Hinduism at least. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Els, for not only uh, taking these uh, uh, questions from our viewers, but also uh, for having this Q&A. In closing, I would like to again thank uh, uh, you, know, you uh, on behalf of uh, our viewers and the Indic Academy. And uh, uh, 
The book that we discussed today was uh, Dr. Conrad Elf's Decolonizing the Hindu Mind. It's been published by Rupa Publications. And uh, Dr. Elf's latest book, Mahatma Gandhi and His Assassin, just came out uh, uh, a short while back. It's available, I believe, uh, from leading e-commerce sites. So I would encourage you to take a look at both books. Uh, I will post these, uh, the uh, audio and the video uh, recording online, and I'll send out links. And once again, thank you, everyone, and have a good day. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Thank good night. You.